All right, we'll do the reading subsequent. Let me do a bit of introduction. We're starting uh, chapter 12. And what I've been arguing in chapter 12 brings it to a kind of culmination is that uh, Jesus' offering, which brings atonement, cannot be conflated with his death. So for the writer of Hebrews, certainly his death was a necessary part, but not the full work of atonement. And so the high priestly ministry of Jesus that we've been talking about is brought to its culmination, its, his perfection, through the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. So this passage we're about to read, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and the imagery then I'm, I've been arguing throughout Hebrews is that it's after the resurrection that he's describing and he's actually referencing the ascension. And this then, the second thought tonight and that I'm going to dwell upon, it inaugurates a new age, an apocalyptic age, in which the promises that we've just looked at in chapter 11, the previous examples, they had not entered into this age, but now these promises in this new age are obtained. So we might call this the resurrection age, this new apocalyptic age, uh, which the writer is contrasting with previous ages. He references here the great cloud of witnesses, and you all know the other meaning of the term witness, right? It also means martyr, right? <clears throat> and uh, maybe the idea here is the martyrs are not looking at us, but are witnesses to the faith to which we are to look. In other words, we're uh, their models, and we have this host of examples which culminates in Christ, whose faithfulness, and the idea here, this just makes so obvious what Richard Hayes has said about Galatians and other places that what we're talking about when we discuss faith is usually uh, the faithfulness of Christ. And the whole context here is that of an athletic event. That is, this faithfulness is connected with enduring, a, a, like a marathon race. He says in 1 2, let lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance that race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, <clears throat> the author and perfecter of our faith. And so if, if what we've said about perfection is correct, that it's not just the death of Christ, but it's the resurrection, the ascension, that's what we have in view here. In 12 to 14, he'll continue the... Uh, sports metaphor or the marathon athletic event strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed pursue peace with all men and the sanctification which no one will see uh, uh, which no one will see the Lord without which no one will see the Lord so the goal, we could say, is peaceableness. All discipline for the moment, he says in verse 11, seems not to be joyful but, to sor but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it 
Afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And so what we're striving for and striving, I think, is the idea here, is this peaceableness. Uh, and the base of this, of this peaceableness, at, at least in 12.2, it's not described in terms of sacrificial language or categories. He speaks of the cross on a continuum with the other martyrs or the other witnesses. The cross is presented as Jesus' moment of trial, just like all these people have been through great trials, and his death is part of his preparation for his entry into his inheritance, which we share in his rest, which, you know, the vision here is his inheritance, his rest, his place at the right hand of God. So if ever there were a place in Scripture that makes it clear that the message of the cross is not imputed righteousness, is not he died so that we do not have to, I think it's the book of Hebrews and it's certainly this, this section. So he faithfully endured and so should we. He took up a cross and so should we. He did not shrink back. He entered in. He obtained a better resurrection. And that's the model for us. What It, it applies directly to Jesus, but it, it is an example to the readers that they would endure. And so the key part you know, of Hebrews is we're, we're doing stuff. We're enduring. We have patience. We have deeds. Uh, but the big big picture here now my big point is that all of this takes place if we rightly recognize the times and so the writer sets the entire frame of this enduring faith in an apocalyptic imagery look at 22 to 24 you have come to mount zion to the city of the living god the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the myriad of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge. Look at verse 26. His voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake it. Look at verse 28. We receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. So things are getting shaken up. Because we've entered into a period that is apocalyptic, it's final age. And so several things are coming together. He's emphasized deeds, he's emphasized performing these deeds as a definition of faithfulness. And these deeds then are framed, you know, what are they? What? Well, their faith, their hope, their patience, and the model is Christ. But all this is due to Christ. Uh, the, and it's set in a, the end time frame that he's inaugurated with his resurrection. Uh, in the passage, he suffered the worst death, he despised its shame, he was raised, he's ascended, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. This is the inauguration of the eschatological end time. So we can recognize the goal to which we're striving it is to enable us to enter in, to participate in the glory, to find a final and full access to God. He's going to say in chapter 13, here we have no lasting city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. And then, you know, if you think back, well, uh, the, in chapter 11, 
they received, you know, they were faithful, but they did not receive the promise, but we now have received the promise. But maybe I need to pause here a minute, and what is apocalyptic or apocalypse? And the idea, does anybody want to take a shot at that, of apocalyptic? Zombies. Huh? Zombies. Zombies, yeah. We got a lot of, if you turn on the TV, you're probably going to see apocalyptic stuff, right? Uh, I mean, we could go through The Matrix, The Book of Eli, what are some other apocalyptic movies? Numbers. Numbers, I I don't know that one, but uh, probably uh, Lost. Do you remember the TV show Lost? we are fascinated today with apocalyptic uh, TV shows, apocalyptic ideas in philosophy that I'll talk about here in a minute. And of course, I'm say, what I would say is this is all bad apocalypse. It's the wrong kind of apocalypse. Uh, but I think it is a direct outworking of Christian apocalypse gone bad. I think it's very similar to Hal Lindsey's late great planet Earth. Bad apocalypse, you know. Uh, I haven't seen the movie, but I read the book. Uh, frightening stuff that I think has very little to do with what the New Testament understanding is. The New Testament idea is that God is breaking into human history and the idea that one political and cultural era is going to replace another. One is going to be displaced. And so it's a tone, you know, you get it in the New Testament that we're in the final age. Uh, It is the idea of the destruction of one world and the replacement of that world with another world. Uh, What would be the key book about, you know, that when we think of apocalypse, what book do we think of? And Revelation is where the word comes from, you know, the book of the apocalypse. Uh, uh, But we could... What I would say is we probably shouldn't just locate it, you know, in Daniel, Revelation, in these particular books, but the whole New Testament, beginning with the resurrection of Christ, is an apocalypse. It is the inauguration of the end times. But this is Kierkegaard's point that with Christianity there is a kind of unleashing of the counter-Christian, and I think that modernity is kind of a bad apocalyptic understanding but we can get the idea I think Jesus is really he's come along and he says he's going to change up the world in a traditional culture or religion there is not this notion of the entire cosmos itself or of the world being changed I think that's an idea peculiar to Jesus but once he unleashes that idea it's going to happen again and again and again so in modernity, you know, Descartes comes along and says, let's change up the world. Let's destroy the foundations. Marx comes along and says, let's change up the world. And so we could define modernity as, again and again, a continual revolution. This is, you know, Marx, I think, misunderstood. I think I look at Marxism as kind of an, uh, a heretical Christianity with a, a heretical utopia. Uh, so the thing that Marx though sees in Christian apocalypse and that he will critique of it 
he says, well, we don't need another worldly kingdom up in heaven somewhere, but actually what we need is a this-worldly kingdom. And I would say Marx is correct. That our tendency, like with Hal Lindsey and a Gnostic Christianity, is to picture the heavenly Jerusalem as completely removed from the earth. But what is being pictured, you know, here in Hebrews, this city that has no foundations, that, that is built by God, yes, but it's a city that's established by Christ, and the gesture is then to Jerusalem as a city that, you know, is presently displacing the earthly Jerusalem. So, uh, there is uh, an apocalyptic understanding, but I'm afraid we often miss it. This is kind of the guy I've done. I, you know, I've worked a lot with Slavoj Zizek, and one of Zizek's big books is called The End Times. It sounds just like Hal Lindsey. Um, he's kind of doing a play off of people like Derrida and Caputo, who talk about apocalyptic, but they're they're almost talking about it in the bad apocalypse. In other words, with Derrida. He's always, he says, well, there's the form of the apocalypse. The Messiah is always coming, but he'll never come. In other words, it's kind of an atheistic understanding. Uh, Zizek describes it. We, he says we need to get rid of this notion of a, he, he calls it the other. Uh, his idea is that to be an atheist, we rid ourselves of this kind of platonic other. And I, in a sense, I can agree with that. In other words, his critique is a Marxian critique of Christianity. But I think Christianity, correctly understood, is not Platonic and Gnostic or Nominalist, but rather it is a real-world salvation. Um, so, uh, bad apocalypse would in some way take deep satisfaction in the destruction of the world, in the destruction of the body. Um, Zizek says that if you want to be a true atheist, you need to get rid of this otherworldly. He says in uh, the Pauline, Pauline Christian communities, the true communities today, he says they're not really to be found in churches but in political groups. And they assume all the consequences of the non-existence of the big other. You know, whatever that big other is. He says not just any atheism can do it, but it has to be an atheism that gets rid of the big other as the law, as a kind of perverse lawgiver. He says only Christianity opens that up. I think he's right, except the part about where he's an atheist. In other words, I think what Christianity does for us is that we get rid of one notion of God, one form of apocalypse, and replace it with another. Yeah, I just turned it on. So the easy way to say it is that Christ brings an end to Gnosticism. He brings an end to bad apocalypse. Uh, that we get rid of, not we don't get rid of the heavenly city, but we understand the heavenly city as one that comes to earth, the new Jerusalem come to earth. The body of Christ is ascended to the right hand of God, 
But it's not a passage beyond embodiment, but it's a positive embodiment in which Christ is the true temple and the world is has become the fit dwelling place of God. And that, I think, is the idea in the bodily ascension. So Jesus completely, this is the argument of Hebrews, he completely shares in the human condition, and this accounts for his death and for his being you know, his overcoming death in his resurrection. This is the overcoming of the fear of death in Hebrews 2. And this fearless life orientation that he gives us through his high priesthood is made available to us. So, so we can say Jesus' resurrection is the commencement of the last days. And here is the great discontinuity in history. Both the writer of Hebrews and Paul to, to, uh, compare it to creation ex nihilo. Uh, it is an act on the order of creation. Here is recreation as it's pictured in John. Uh, here is where Christ's lordship is, you know, he's lord over our lives, over the principalities and powers. He's designated son of God on the basis of the power of his resurrection. And so the resurrection is this apocalyptic new way of construing the world. Colossians says he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. In time has begun in Christ. Here is the, there is a new creation that has come to pass. Now certainly the old epoch lingers and we are between the times. Uh, we're not preterists who believe that this is heaven. We're still suffering, we still have evil. But as the writer of Hebrews says, we've tasted the heavenly gift. And so the point of resurrection and ascension is not to aggravate notions of alienation and distance through the idea of departure, but that to, to understand reality, there is an alternative embodied reality. And so the idea we are united with, when we're baptized, we're united in his death, we're united with his resurrection, we're united. It's not an image of being united, but the idea is we are truly united with Christ. So the Hebrews has said again and again, he's eternally resurrected, he's seated at the right hand, one, three, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, eight, one, one who is seated at the right hand of the front throne of the majesty in the heavens, 12.2, at the right hand of the throne of God, he has taken his seat. And so the point is, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him despised the shame and sits at the right hand of God. So the emphasis here is that on Jesus' action, he's taken his seat, he inherits the promised rest, and this uh, was something he achieved by his incarnation, his enduring the cross. He could scorn its shame uh, because death could not hold him, and his bodily ascension is an eternal, ongoing defeat of death. So now he not only rests, but he brings others into his rest. And this rest came through struggle, Christ endured the hostility uh, of sinners to the end point of the cross, but the point is not the struggle, not the dialectic of hostility and conflict. 
but Christ's ascension then allows it, it is a defeat and end of that and the image of Christ seated at the right hand of God here is the conclusion brings peace it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness so I think that's the key point let's read it 12.1 Sharon you want to read Okay, why don't we just, let's just do nine verses. Okay. And read, go ahead and read two. I, 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 uh, this is a heavy chapter. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings us so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God, the throne of God. This, of course, was Alec's question. And that he scorned its shame. He, he, uh, that it, the shame had no grip on him. The shame was something. What, you know, this is connected with the answer to his prayer in chapter 5, that he would be delivered from death, and he was delivered. Uh, through resurrection and so shame is the idea in the Old Testament of the final shame of being uh, uh, of enduring death you know David prays let my bones not see decay or disintegration well uh, in a sense then Jesus he passes through death not experiencing the fullness of an enduring shame and the picture here is that I think this is the direction the spect who's the spectators here well in a sense we are the spectators let us fix our eyes on Jesus uh, he has run this race and and we're to imitate him is there more here you got a thought um, Bonhoeffer's book he talks about peacemakers are people who are willing to um, they would prefer to have injustices happen to them rather to incur injustices on somebody else in response and that is what it is to endure is to prefer at least in like this sense when we're talking about um talking about peaceableness before that it's some what makes it so difficult is that you do have to endure pain you do have to endure the injustice you do have to endure the suffering and the shame and um, the things that come with that but to live peaceably is to prefer that over causing that for somebody else even if it's a response That we're to be peaceable, we're not to be the source of the violence, but we're to in, absorb the violence in some way. It's easy to say all this. It's a lot more difficult to actually absorb violence. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But uh, the the idea of you know that is in enacting Christ's forgiveness in the world, I guess, 
is to not return violence with violence. So, uh, it's very counterintuitive. It is, yeah, counter instinctual, counterintuitive. For some of us, more than others. <laughs> there, there. I mean, this. I've been, uh, Matt Welch got me. Did I already talk about this? He got me uh, David Bentley Hart's translation of the New Testament. I already talked about this. Well, I mean, that's the vision that you get in Hart's translation is this stuff is, you know, does anybody really want to do this? What our Christianity often functions to do is remove us from the reality that the New Testament is to bring us into. So, I, I mean, I didn't, I didn't mean to skip over here. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I think that's obviously ascension language. Does Jesus' death save? That's a, a perverse way to put it. Well, not apart from his resurrection and ascension. We could almost say Jesus' ascension saves because it is inclusive of the entire movement of the life of Christ. Because that is the point at which the high priesthood is inaugurated. Dylan, you want to read verse 3 and 4? Consider him who endured such upper opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding more blood. And we don't know what the circumstance is, but it may be that that's coming that they will have to endure uh, persecution up to some sort of bloodletting. Uh, if it's leading up to the period of the persecution on, under Nero, we understand this. If it's, I mean, obviously, uh, if, it's a pro, if it's Jerusalem, they've already endured persecution that includes martyrdom. So some people think that, can't think it can't be written to Jerusalem for that reason. So others, so some would say, well, it's probably Rome then. Okay, and then uh, Alec, you want to read five and six? Yeah. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be wary when improved by it. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and chastises every son whom he receives. And this is the, the quotation from my, uh, or from Proverbs, and the idea is not that God, uh, you know, I don't think that we want to, this is very similar to what one of the friends of Job says. But it's a little bit different. It's not that, that God causes these things to happen. But the idea is that passing through this can be a kind of discipline. Uh, that here is uh, the possibility of enduring as Christ endured. You know, the disciples counted all joy, as Paul says. Uh, because we recognize that here we're being treated as the sons of God, that we're enduring as Christ endured. Evan, do you have it? 
you want to read verse uh, 7 and 8? It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Uh, The word is, you know, a bad word. He says you're bastards. If you know you don't have a, a, a legitimate father, uh, so that discipline, suffering as Christ suffered, is a kind of the seal and sign of sonship. Uh, there's two kinds of suffering. You know, there's the suffering that we have in Romans seven that we bring on ourselves, the kind of suffering of an agonistic struggle within our own mind. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking in chapter 8 of Romans, he talks about hardship, you know, hunger, uh, the kind of pain that the world can bring on us. That's a very different kind of suffering. The first suffering is unendurable. I think it's a suffering that will kill you. But the second kind of suffering is part of the normal life that we go through. We're all going to suffer. Uh, and experience hardship, and so don't, you know, uh, count it all joy. And I will read the last verse. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? I don't think we should make too much out of this, but he, he clearly is... Uh, contrasting father, you know, the father of spirits with the earthly fathers. I don't think he means disembodied spirits, or uh, but he means that that we've been born spiritually, and here is the father of that spiritual birth, which is inclusive of uh, the Christian life. All right, I'll pause for eight seconds. Any comments, questions on this opening section? Um, Two. Uh, First, there's like two verses left inside of the discipline thing, so should we just finish that? Okay, go ahead, Alec. Oh, okay. 10 and 11? Sure. Where they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Oh, that was a good place to end, yes. Uh, That it takes us to the peaceful fruit of righteousness, which is, I I thought, the key point in this section. I don't know why I left that out. Well, my question was actually, was about the word discipline. So, I've heard it taught, and talked with other people who completely disagree with this point of view, that the discipline is like a punitive thing. It's like a you did something wrong sort of, so we're disciplining it, and that's what the word discipline means. I've also heard it uh, conversed with, uh, I was talking with Logan Green, and we both went through Reese's class. That was Reese's view that I just said. Uh, Logan's thought on it was that discipline is something different that doesn't imply that. I was just wondering if you knew anything 
about? Well, I think the the model here of the 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 suffering is Christ, and of course, my understanding is Christ was not punished. Now, it does talk about Christ being brought up to maturity, you know. And so I think that our discipline is, that the discipline he's talking about is on that order. I'm afraid, though, I I mean, it's not a necessity, but if you end up with a kind of Calvinistic notion of penal substitution, uh, that not only we, but Christ is punished by God, I think that's the wrong understanding. Certainly, it's it's the wrong understanding here. I don't. I think this is simply not punishment in the sense of, uh, you know, a, a just requirement of the law being met. What is talked about is the, you know, if you think of Dallas Willard's spirit of the disciplines that we should all be disciplined, uh, and just living this life as a Christian is a discipline that the whole book of Hebrews is about doing, the, you know, walking as Christ walked. It's about uh, performing particular deeds of righteousness. And that's a, that's a discipline. This isn't magic stuff. You know, I, 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 to learn anything, I, I had to go through the discipline of horseshoeing school to learn to be a horseshoer. Think of, you know, that is so basic, you know. Uh, You think that we don't need training in righteousness? I think we do. And that's what I think he's describing is this training in righteousness, this discipline that the Christian life (coughs) uh, concerns. Is it just in any other way other than the word discipline? Anybody have something different than discipline? I was reading from the ESV. I was just curious. <laughs> uh, mine says. When you hear the word discipline, it, you just have this yeah, like conceived idea of <coughs> negative and punitive. And there is another meaning to it, like you're saying. You know, like you're disciplining yourself. I think when you first read this, and maybe. Will think of being punished for something they did wrong, you know? Like, when I discipline myself, it's like I'm doing something that is, you know, going to help me in life. Like, I'm doing push-ups or, like, I'm reading a book or something mm-hmm. like that. When my parents disciplined me, yeah, it was diff- a two-inch thick board of wood on my hindquarters. It's a different thing, yeah. There's a difference. Yeah. Okay. So, maybe with the... And I don't know how, you know, the Hebrew people, when they're reading this, how they came across, but I think in our culture that we have that image of the, the father, and the father discipline leads to a negative, painful, punitive. At least in our household it was. My, my dad was. Yeah. Uh, well, maybe there is an interconnection here, you know, that our image of God and our image of the Father are very much, uh, we draw one from the other. And maybe vice versa, that the way that our fathers have treated us is a product of their own, in a Christian household, their own theology. 
And so if you see God as punitive punishing, and you see children as having original sin, I mean, this is Calvinist child, you know, even as little infants, they start saying, oh, don't let those babies push you around because they're full of original sin, you know. I think that's... I don't know. Like, it's hard to... Like in, in Proverbs, like you have the um, the Proverbs that talk about like um, like the the father not sparing the rod, you know, for his, his children or whatever. Um, but even even in that, like when you think about the discipline of parents, uh, like I've thought about it um, as not necessarily that you know your your child does something wrong, so you discipline them in order to. to deliver a punishment, but rather that they would learn from that in a way. And so, like, uh, if I if I don't spare the, you know, if Alex's parents, you know, they didn't spare the wooden board, you know, um, not because they, they wanted to punish you because you were such a terrible child. You know, I mean, maybe that was the case, but, you know, but, uh, like, in, in a good example, yeah. like, they would, they would rather that teach you, you know, that what, whatever you did was the incorrect way, you know, and and you need to learn the correct way, and so we're giving you this, you know, like to make sure that you understand that. Um, and I don't know, I don't know if that has any effect on on what we're reading here. Like it helps me to whenever I read discipline in scripture, that's how I think about it. Like even even if it is a parent, like that's you know, you know. Uh, Responding to a, a wrong action that you you've done or something like that, they would do that with the hope that you would learn um, the right way, not just to say, "Oh my gosh, you know, you've just incurred my wrath, and now I'm going to have to punch you in the face," you know, or something like that, because um, you made me mad. But. I think, regardless of whatever it is taken as, the result is a changed attitude. Whether it is a personal discipline of reading, you know, spending time with God or practicing the fruits of the Spirit, it still results in, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and goes on to continue talking about, you know, strive for peace with everyone, for the holiness. That way you can see the Lord. So regardless of whatever kind of discipline it is, it is important what it is. But it results in a action steps towards holiness, whether that's discipline from somebody else or it is self in, self imposed, intrinsic or extrinsic. Yeah, it produces a harvest of peace and righteousness. And I guess the the part of this is the again the apocalyptic understanding. We understand this is temporary that this is not an, uh, a suffering that we just continually go through, but that it's sort of like the race metaphor. We see the end line. We see that this is going to take us someplace, and the place it's taken us is rest, uh, which Jesus has entered into. So I think the the, the father meta, you know, it is a, both the athletic and the father metaphor are a picture of the way that we can view suffering in this world. Uh, I don't think that, you know, this is the perverse understanding that God 
Jesus counters, you know, oh, did that tower in Siloam fall on those people because they were peculiarly sinful? And Jesus combats that. He said, no, that's not, you know, or was this man healed uh, or crippled because his, he was sinful or his parents? He said, no, that he's, uh, that you're, this is so that the glory of God might be seen. And then he heals the man. And so he's combating a common Jewish understanding that sees suffering and evil as a direct cause connected with people's, you know, moral failings, like with the book of Job. Uh, It seems like the Jews didn't get that. Uh, No, that's not why people suffer. Everybody's going to, uh, in fact, go through similar kinds of suffering. And as Christians... Apparently, it's going to be intensified because uh, we're following Christ, and uh, in some way, we will not reap the rewards of this world. Uh, we will not have, you know, if we pursue the rewards and riches of this world, well, that's one kind of reward, but to not do that, I suppose, is a kind of suffering. And to live that way is a kind of discipline. Pause. You have to let it be silent for eight whole seconds. Count on your fingers, it will help. (laughs) (laughs) And don't say pause. Oh. (laughs) It's like reading your your directions in a play. Yeah. (laughs) I'm now pausing. Long pause. Look right. I think this chapter could be a, <laughs> a very discouraging chapter if you don't get the apocalyptic part. In other words, that you see all this in that view. I'm filling in the gaps. While we were talking, I, I did some like really brief Greek study. Another gloss for the word is train. So it can be discipline or train. Training. So, so it's probably... Like it's probably it just talking about like well, my dad told me I need to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning because we work on a farm and I need to do farm stuff so that we can actually grow crops and crap like that. And I hate it, but this is ultimately what we need to do, even though it's painful in the moment. And when I'm old, I'm going to train my kids in this sort of stuff. And what you're doing is what Paul's describing as the transformation of the mind. That eventually what we discipline ourselves to do trains us in a new form of thought. I think this is just common psychology here. And once you do this enough, it becomes instinctual. It becomes part of your character. Some of us may discipline ourselves in different ways. Uh... And, and our characters be trained in different ways. Uh, but I think the discipline is to bring to fullness the gifts that you have been given. This seems real psychological-like stuff, Dave. I'm guessing that 
uh, in psychoanalysis or in psychology or in counseling, this is what you tell people to do. You have this pattern and you're a neurotic and you're a sick puppy. And what you need to do, I'm talking about as you counsel people. So what you do in counseling is you say, let's change up your pattern of thought. And that is a discipline. Uh, and so the spiritual discipline is in some ways a big